this corner with the Brian Campbell. This is the professional wrestling edition. Now me, I am handsome Nick Costos. And in addition to just looking handsome in terms of how I look, my very handsome face, I am clothed head to toe in expensive, beautiful garments. Thanks to my guy, Paul, from the Nordstrom and Aventura in South Florida. Absolutely love my guy, Paul. My shirt is Hugo Boss, $250. My pants, Ted Baker, $300 plus. My watch, Burberry, $1,200. My shoes, Prada, $700. (laughs) And the only reason I'm wearing the $700 Pradas is because I left the $700 Ferragamos at home. Now, you might be asking yourself, hey, handsome Nick, we know that you're handsome. We know that you make good money. We know that you dress well. Why are you shoving it in our faces? The answer, of course, is because that underneath it all, underneath the clothes, underneath the manufactured tan, lies a petty, pathetic, insecure little man that requires your validation and requires the compliments on his clothes and his hair and his tan to get through the day on Instagram at the Costos. And as always, I am joined by my tag team partners. First up, he's on a roll. He's securing great guests for the program week after week. But I'll be honest, he won his bet with the Kansas City Chiefs on Monday night. I lost with the Redskins, so I kind of hope he burns in hell. He is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. Hey now, backdoor cover. And as always, I am joined by the man whose name is on the marquee. Come on. He is the icon. Let's go. He is the main event. My man. He is the showstopper. One time. He is the whole effing show. Bring it. He is the bod that runs the pod. Stay hype. He is the mast that guides the cast. It's time. He's wearing a Neville shirt. He showers once every three days. We won't hold either of those two things against him. Why? Because you know his name. He is the Brian Campbell. Oh, yeah. BC, tell him what's on the podcast. Once again, listeners, dear listeners, you're going to want to do yourselves a favor and get some of this. We told you this stretch of time for the In This Corner podcast was simply one you could not miss from our 2K18 red carpet interview episode through one-on-one chats with AJ Styles, Roman Reigns, and Charlotte Flair. The ITC has delivered over the past four weeks. So what do we do this week? We came back and delivered once more. Not only will you be hearing us break down the week that was in WWE and preview Sunday's Hell in a Cell pay-per-view from Detroit, we will go back into the archives during pay-per-view rewind and relive the very first HIAC match between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. But more important than that, this week we offer you a sit-down you really, once again, can't afford to miss with Kevin Owens, we don't want to be those guys, right? We're not the kind of guys to say, we told you so, but we told you so. I mean, seriously, we are on one heck of a roll. Get yourself some of this. We're also on the verge of collecting another surplus of great sound with top WWE superstars past and present for another bonus interview pod that will be on the horizon. So catch that. So if you've liked what you heard, by the way, from any of the ITC offerings in recent weeks, well, see something, say something. Please do us a favor. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review, spread that word on social media with the hashtag in this corner. It's time to get that party started again. Let me hand the keys back to the most. Most passionate man in North America who's speaking of Nick. I mean, shout out to Paul from Nordstrom at all, but I couldn't help but notice something over the Skype cam when I was, you know, checking it out. What size shirt is that? A medium? Get the hell out of here. 
Nasty Nick Costos. Yeah, well, like I wrote to you on Twitter, Enzo Amore wishes he was as good-looking as me, wishes he had my fashion style because he goes out to the ring looking like a schmuck every week where Paul from Nordstrom sends me into work looking like a million bucks. Great introduction, as always, from the King Balco, the first, the Victor Conti, the cousin Yuri of our performance-enhancing audio, the man whose name is on the marquee, the Brian Campbell. Gentlemen, as always, we begin in this corner with the main event. Now, you want to talk about feel spots. Mine was penetrated fully on Monday night when Raw closed with a very poignant and silent 90-second tease. Roman Reigns sitting by himself in the locker room, recovering from a three-on-one beatdown at the hands of The Miz, Sheamus, and Cesaro. Dean Ambrose comes in from the left. Seth Rollins comes in for the right. Roman Reigns stands up. They all look at each other. They disperse without the fist bump or anything, but it's very clear the Shield will soon, Brian Campbell, be back. Feel spot activated. Fuck it. It, it may not have fully been this. I mean, but it was basically this. I'm fired up right now. Look, I don't want to hear that it was too predictable. I don't want to hear that it was too soon. I don't want to hear any of that because, Nick, sometimes when you break it all down in pro wrestling and this art form that we spend a lot of our weeks putting our attention in our mid to late 30s into this, sometimes it just works out great when the fans get what they want. And seeing the Shield reunite something that worked so well that ended at such an important time and launched three superstars out there, I don't want to hear if there's any wrinkles in the way they presented this, because the fact that they are presenting it is a feel spot moment to begin with worthy to lead the show in the main event. We are on the doorstep of getting that again and seeing that and not seeing them go to the fist, which was important to me, Nick, seeing that locker room scene where they kind of check each other up and down. It was the perfect way to close that episode to provide that feel spot. Those, those, those bumps, those, you know, all, all the things that come with, with marking out to pro wrestling. And it was a perfect example of how you lay out a Raw episode where you can you start the storyline, you go back to it in and out, and then you close with it. I could not be more fired up. Go ahead. You can dissect it all you want if, if, if you were the Silver King or ready to do that. But I say <laughs> don't do that because this is what we want. We're getting it. Let's give it a chance to be great because, man – you know, I love the mega powers. I even love that time when Hogan and Warrior got together for that brief tag team run and those promos sounded like they were doing blow beforehand each time. I love when superstars get together for creative, fun segments and runs, and this has the potential to be something fun. I agree, and I, I'm shocked that you thought I'd disagree with you or want to dissect it. Who the hell doesn't want to see this? Who doesn't want to see the Shield back in action? And it comes at a perfect time for WWE with Brock Lesnar set to take some time off. They've got to do something to keep the fans in, interested in the red brand until Brock is indeed back. How do you do that? You reform the shield. So I think it's it's absolutely brilliant. And I love the storyline layout of it. I love the Miz's involvement. And I said last week, I felt like it probably was never going to be a scenario where it would be the Miz Taraj against the shield. So the Sheamus and Cesaro, the inclusion of them certainly adds a level of gravitas to the proceedings. And I'll tell you, this match is going to be awesome. When they do this six-man match, the shield against the Miz, Sheamus, and Cesaro, the match is going to be great. The crowd's going to be red hot. The promos leading up to it are going to be awesome. This is a total feel spot moment all around. And let's not lose the most important piece of this and bury the lead. This ultimately is not all about Roman Reigns, but it's probably 80% about Roman Reigns. Because now what you have, and I referenced it last week, the sea change in Roman Reigns and how he's 
perceived by the crowd and how he's cheered by the crowd after he beat John Cena at No Mercy. Where Reigns was got more of a babyface reaction last week on Raw than I had heard in quite some time, and this week on Raw as I've heard in quite some time. And what you have done now is put Roman Reigns in a situation where there is a, if it's not 100, a 99% chance that he is going to get cheered. Like, they are not going to cheer Rollins and Ambrose and boo Roman Reigns when the Shield gets back together. Roman Reigns is going to get a ton of face heat here that's going to propel them into the Royal Rumble and into the WrestleMania stuff with Brock Lesnar. So I think this is brilliant all the way around. I, I just think it's, it, it, it's a great, great job by WWE for all the reasons I just laid out. Big dog. I mean, big dog all the way. How could you how could you be a dissenter? But the Silver King, you've been known to find those cracks. Do you find any cracks in the armor of the way this has been presented? Yeah, I mean, since you're giving me that prompt to go ahead and do it, I was actually going to stay real positive on this. But you know what? I, I agree with you. I don't care that it was predictable. I don't care about the timing. What I do care about is how forced it feels, how clunky it is that there's so many people involved in and out of this angle and what that tells me is they are using, and they do this often in WWE, they're using whatever happens at TLC as just a little bit of a breather to get us to Survivor Series. What I see happening is a big Survivor Series match with the Shield, maybe like Matt Hardy and Jason Jordan, and then the Miz Taraj with Sheamus and Cesaro, or maybe you get Braun Strowman thrown in there as well, and we're going to talk about Braun later in the program. But for me, it's I, I'm excited to see the Shield reunite. I like how they did it at the beginning of the show. You know, they, they teased it, and they called back at the end, which was my problem one week ago when I said, hey, Raw, you can't really just end on Cruiserweights. Like, give me a little bit more juice. Don't fully book around the NFL. And they didn't fully book around the NFL, although that uh, Reigns and Miz match, of course, was during halftime once again. But they brought it back at the end. They rewarded their viewers for sticking with them the whole way. So that's my, you know, my whole thought process on it. A little forced, a little clunky, but yeah, I'm jacked for it. I would come out. All right. That was, you know, that was, that was perfectly soft. I'll take that. You know, I mean, I, I, I never know if you're going to come in and butcher, <laughs> but how can you, because this is good. Hey, WWE, how about reproducing some shield t-shirts, right? How about going the full mile and really milk this? Cause I, this is the kind of stuff we want to mark for, by the way, if you ever made a mega powers t-shirt, I'd line up outside of Stanford into the building to buy it for the first one that you print. So let's get the shield going back on all the merch. Once again, a, a couple. And by the way, there's a mega power shirt. I'm all over that as well. Um, so let's hit a couple of the, like the subplots, within the shield being back here. And let's start with the Miz and his continued involvement. I said this last week. I think this is probably this extended six month run when you include what he did at WrestleMania with John Cena and the build up to that match. I think this is the best stretch of the guy's entire career. I mean, he is so electric on the microphone. He's really, really good in the ring. Bri, I think it's time for us to, and not that we haven't done it already, but to really lavish this guy with the praise that he deserves here because he is really the heel focal point here of the Shield getting back together. And this is something that years ago we never would have thought, right, that the Miz would be the front man of the heel group going up against the Shield. So I just think that he's been extraordinary and he has proven to be a worthy heel adversary for, for when the Shield does reunite. Well, not only you're right, I think that you would have been right even saying this last fall, right? Coming off of SummerSlam with the big promo opposite Daniel Bryan, Maurice by his side for six months at that point. I think that, that was... The, where he showed you he can get back to the mountaintop, that he is doing the best run of his career. But I think he also showed you there, Nick, that he's ready for a main title run. And talking to him a few times over the past year off camera, he's really laid that out to me himself, right? Like, it's okay to put the IC belt on him, but he's ready for a main title run again. He did nothing but 
destroy the opportunity opposite Cena heading into WrestleMania, put on an incredible program, one of the more memorable builds. I guess this is the best he's going to get right now with the way the landscape is, but hopefully this isn't the mountaintop of the resurgence for him, Nick. Hopefully this run opposite maybe the three biggest babyface stars outside of Cena that they have can lead to him competing for that universal belt again and not just topping off on the IC level. How about the insertion of Sheamus and Cesaro, Bry? It's good because they're, you know, and I'm not, it's not that I have anything against those guys. I just don't see those guys as top guys. And you can argue are, me are all you, you want. Real, yeah, that's a dude. joke. That's a joke. They're just not top guys. I'm sorry. They're really strong mid-level guys. Them with tag team belts like they were in the past years, probably the topping off point. Look, I love Cesaro, but he's not a main event championship guy. Sheamus was able to play the authorities bully role opposite Reigns to decent success when he had the belt the most recent time at the end of 2015. But they're not the front men of this year. They're like the ancillary pieces, and they're phenomenal ancillary pieces. So that's essentially what I'm telling you. It's sort of a long-winded way of telling you that, it, yeah, this is so this is good because I didn't want them with the belts anymore. They had their run. It was fun. This is the best you can do. Put them in almost a faction, right? I mean, it's not League of Nations. It's better than that already. With the Remember the League of Nations? That was actually a thing that happened. Trying to forget the League and of it, Nations. It was horrend- and it was horrendous. It's, yeah, it was horrendous because nothing happened. So at least now this is – so my point of, of kind of insulting them is to say – this is the the, be, the the most they could do for me. This is their mountaintop point to be an accessory in the number one feud of the moment, and I think they're doing a great job. First of all, you could put Cesaro on SmackDown today, and he could be WWE champion. Better than Jinder Mahal, probably better than Shinsuke Nakamura would carry the belt. This guy, you want to talk about a main eventer? Cesaro is one of the top guys in WWE if given the opportunity. The problem is... He's not given the opportunity, and he's stuck in this tag team. And I'm not saying that's bad. I love this tag team. I love them as champions. I love them as non-champions. But I'm all in on Cesaro. You can give that guy. There's a reason he doesn't. He's a re, there's a reason he's not getting what as many fans want him to get, which is a run at one of the top belts again, to get that kind of push. In the ring, he can be the workhorse with anyone. But guys, I'm sorry. He doesn't have the charisma to be a top singles guy. Here's where I disagree. It, Here's where I disagree with in. you guys on that point. Bry, disagree with him. You were, not, not, you, not Bry, you were, you were there with me. We stood shoulder to shoulder. If I was the same height as you, we would stand shoulder to shoulder, but close to it. And we interviewed Sheamus and Cesaro for 15 minutes at the WWE 2K18 event the Friday before SummerSlam. And then Cesaro came back and did another 10 minutes with us. And I was floored by how much charisma these guys have. And I'm not going to relay the story that that I the conversation I had with them off air. I'm just going to say what I said. What I said to them was. I don't understand why WWE doesn't give you guys a microphone and send you out to the ring and give you 10 minutes to do your thing because they would entertain the hell out of the crowd. I don't think it's their fault. I think it's WWE's fault. Look, it's WWE's fault in the era that everything scripted, one. But number two, look at what you said. They were so great playing off of each other. Yes, as a tag team which is the peak of what they can do in WWE together because separately and individually, specifically Cesaro, he just doesn't have it. Guys, there's a reason why Vince McMahon and that now famous podcast, right, end of 2014, early 2015 with Steve Austin, when pressed for a guy who's not grabbing the brass ring, it's Cesaro. I'm not saying he doesn't have the ambition. He just doesn't have what it takes to be a top guy. We're going to love him, but he's not Daniel Bryan. He's not going to end up going over the mountain. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. We could be here all day debating this. But, you know, look, I mean, we know in, in the end, ultimately, what this, what this show is called. In this Campbell podcast. So we may have to move on. All right. And, 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 and with that said, let, let us indeed move on. You know, it is the feud that never ends. It just goes on and on. My friends, it's never going to end. It's Bray Wyatt and Finn Balor. Um, and it's funny because Finn Balor's in the ring. And this is, again, the second part of our double main event where Finn goes, I, 
I, you, the demon beat you, and then the man beat you. And it's like, he's basically saying like, yeah, this is really stupid. And I'm sitting there at home thinking, you're right. This is really stupid. Like, this was like in WCW when the NWO would go over WCW guys constantly and talk about how bad WCW was. And then eventually you're like, yeah, you're right. WCW is bad. Yeah, you're right. This feud is really stupid. Now, the wrinkle that they're trying to introduce here in a very roundabout, long-ass way of doing it, they had a promo with Bray Wyatt. And he referenced Sister Abigail and said, Sister Abigail's coming. I think this is maybe the 50th time this has been teased over the last few years. But they had a woman laughing, cackling in synchronization with Bray Wyatt towards the end of this promo. Brian, seeming to indicate that finally, finally, Sister Abigail will debut on WWE television at some point in the near future. They kind of played themselves, and we've talked about this, right? Coming off the last pay-per-view, the booking made no sense for Bray to lose to regular Finn Balor before he activated the, the Wolf. I'm sorry, that was the plot to Team Wolf 1 where they stole this whole storyline from. We would have been killing this right now in a positive way, saying like, yes, we may finally see a Sister Abigail. Yes, look at the way this feud is escalating. This feud has actually been handled pretty well in the in the writing, from my point of view, and in the creative. Just the booking Again, and this has followed Bray in recent years, just hasn't made a lot of sense. This feels like a break glass in case of emergency situation where they decided to keep the feud going. People aren't really into that. So they say, look, let's just cash in and make Sister Abigail happen. Now we need to find out what does that mean and what does that look like? Because, guys, it's been teased forever, like Nick said. But if it comes through and it works, it's going to make you forget about all the past sins. Just like when Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt didn't work at WrestleMania, it forced you to forget all the good stuff that they did in the buildup on the way there. This really has that moment. What we don't know now, because right when they tease it this week, and, you know, Bray Wyatt's face changed, right? It was all about, hey, hey, uh, Finn Balor, bring your demon, and I'll peel back the skin, and basically we'll compare demons and see who's the more sadistic and, and stronger so guy. That's stupid. God. That's been in, the, in the black magic. And then you saw the face of Bray Wyatt change. That was creative. It was really d- damn creepy. Let's be really honest. Like evil was trying to penetrate my screen and get through my defenses. That shows you that there's potential for it to work. But guys, it's only going to work based on how good they reveal it. Is it going to be revealed in the form of an actual WWE superstar? There's a lot of rumors, right? Hey, let's throw Paige into that role. She's back in development. I would, I would mark out. Cross. I would mark out if it was Paige. Oh, it would be incredible, right? Let's let's get somebody from the May Young Classic and turn them into that. Or does it just mean? That Bray, because what is Sister Abigail at this point? It's a dark spirit, maybe his dead sister in storyline, who he activates in, you know, underneath that rocking chair in his prayer shack that Randy Orton burnt down, and then that gives him the strength. Can you just re- like, like, like <laughs> can you just do me a favor? Repeat. That. Can you just repeat what you just said and like say it out loud again? Like just say all of that out loud again. What we know as of now of who or what Sister Abigail is is a dark satanic spirit, <laughs> maybe of his dead storyline sister okay. that is contained, buried underground underneath his prayer shack, the same prayer shack that Randy Orton burnt down, <laughs> and that is what he activates to connect with the dark spirits and be so divine's not the right word, but how he can make bugs appear in the ring and turn off the house lights and play his music from, from a distance. That's what gives him that power. He is basically saying, I'm going to unleash the full power of that on you. Good things happen though. And I know I'm rambling here, but good things happen. No, Bray I, enjoyed the rock that. Chair, I enjoyed that. Was, I enjoyed he that. He was manic. It was like rain man. Bray saying, you know, uh, sister Abigail's not lying or whatever he was saying. Like it was, th- there's potential here. It's all in the reveal. Nick, what will the reveal be? Uh, is it going to, ha- is it going to happen? Like, is there going to be a, I mean, I guess it seems like there finally will be one. Look, I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. And I also acknowledge what you said, that if they nail the reveal, 
And if the next thing that happens in the storyline with them is really good, I will be willing to take a mea culpa on the whole thing and say, you know what? They were right and I was wrong. I'm more than willing. I hope it happens. I would love to be wrong. I would love for it to be really good. But how do you have confidence? Because how many times have we had the same kind? And I like Wyndham Rotunda. I like Bray Wyatt. I think he's a really good performer. But how many times have we had this conversation about Bray Wyatt where it's, okay, let's see. If this is really good, then it'll wipe out everything that that happened here. If this match is good, if this storyline's good. It's never good. Like, I made you repeat that for dramatic effect because it's so damn ridiculous. Like, it's is this the plot of a Stephen King novel or is this a professional wrestling? What the hell are we talking about here now? I'm still, because I'm a sap and because I'm a mark and because I love this stuff, I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. I'm willing to give Bray Wyatt the benefit of the doubt here. Do I know what the hell is going to happen? I don't. I hope it's going to be pretty good, though. Silver King, uh, any sort of confidence? And in, in there is a pro wrestling sheet report out there that may lead us in the direction that could be gone. Yeah, I mean, do we want to give a little, hey, spoiler warning? Maybe fast forward 60 seconds. You got a little sound that we can do that's, so people that's know. A good warning. Fast forward 60 seconds if you don't want to hear what might happen according to the dirt. Okay, so here's your warning. Fast forward 60 seconds if you don't want to hear this. But according to pro wrestling sheet, Sister Abigail is Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt is Sister Abigail. They will be the same person, and it will be a part of his character, just like the demon is part of Finn Balor's character. So that or just is... Willow. Remember when Jeff Hardy became Willow in TNA and looked like an absolute creep show? Yeah. Anybody I have, watch? I, I have to tell you, if that's what it is, I I'm done forever with 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 Bray Wyatt, and <laughs> and, and that's unfair to like Bray Wyatt the performer. Like if if that's what they like, that's like like the Black Scorpion. Like they didn't know what the hell to do with it, so they made it Rick Flag at the Rick Flair at the end. Oh, of the oh day. that's that's classic. Don't you dare step no, on. No, it's that. not that's classic. Different. It's classically it's classic in the sense that bad things in wrestling are classic. So, so no, no, that would be horrendous if that's what this was. So horrendous. I, I agree with Nick because what you want is something new introduced to you. If you're gonna bring in Sister Abigail, you want look. They're probably not gonna make it page, or they probably wouldn't make it page because she's known to the audience. She has a fan base. You're kind of ruining her. A a little bit if you do that. And people, it's a long-awaited return. Nikki Cross has kind of already established her character in NXT. What you hope is they do something like they did with Braun Strowman, where it's someone they've totally kept off TV, and they bring him in, and you've never seen him before, and you get stunned by them, and they just dominate, and they now he has a little mini stable again, because it's two of them, not just one. But if it's going to go the direction of the spoiler that you, know, you guys would have heard if you didn't fast forward, um, yeah, I think it's bad. The one good thing that I am totally bought in on is you know what I didn't hear Monday night on Raw? I didn't hear anything about the extraordinary Finn Balor. It was dropped after one week. So thank you, oh, WWE. Right when it came out, they gave one. They said the Did extraordinary, they? Okay. And those extraordinary things, then but I, never forget on that. This, this, I take it back. This brings me to the last point here in our double main event. Bri, does Finn Balor have it? Does he yes. have Oh, yeah. Yes, he does. He does. He does have it. He has a look in his eyes and in, in his aura. I don't mean to get creepy with you, but he has it. He has the it factor that you can't describe and that you can't teach. He's undersized. Maybe it's going to either work best as a baby face coming from underneath or as the leader of a heel faction. Bullet Club, anybody? It's going to work in either way. But, yeah, it's going to work, Nick. At SummerSlam last year, it worked when he beat Seth Rollins, right? The fans booed that blue belt. But outside of that, it worked. He unfortunately got injured. It is going to work. You just have to plug it in and activate it, okay? Activate the crap out of it. Let's do this. Is he good enough on the microphone to carry a show? No, but here's the thing. Look, is AJ Styles tremendous on the microphone? No. Who's better, in your opinion, AJ or Finn on the mic? AJ a little bit better, but Finn's a li- better. A little bit so- better? I would say AJ's a good amount better. I don't know. Look, 
we're seeing Finn as a pure babyface. Finn was really good as a heel leader of the Bullet Club, right? If you did something like that again, you may see a different performer. Seth Rollins is a babyface, not that great on the mic. Let's be really honest, right? Tremendous as a heel. Sometimes there's that breakdown. I think Finn is just so good, like AJ, where he can just elevate his whole game. Yes, plug him in. But the real long-term question here is, is this just going to be what we always think with Bray? where, you know, he has his theatrical moments, but then he always loses to the bigger star and essentially is a top-level jobber, Jake the Snake Roberts of 1990, 1988, or is this going to be some kind of swerve where Bray finally does get a lift from this? I don't think it's going to happen, only because I feel like I've touched the stove too many times as a professional wrestling fan, and I've been burned so many <laughs> times. I don't know if I'm willing to touch the stove again, but look, We'll see what happens with it. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think the Finn Balor conversation is one that we will have to revisit moving forward here because I agree he's got all the tools. I want to see a little more from Finn Balor when he's on the microphone. I'm not saying he can't do it, but I'm just saying that I want to see it. And that does it for the main event portion of our show today. Now, we will get to the Kevin Owens interview coming up momentarily. But first, we must hand things over to Comrade Silverstein, the Russian judge, Brian Campbell, for this week's edition of Hero or Zero. Right now, just to fill everybody in, I won last week because I am good. Brian Campbell is bad, and I will win this week because I am the superior competitor to Brian Campbell, even though Brian Campbell's name is on the marquee. With that, we turn it over to the corrupt Russian judge, Comrade Silver King, for question number one. So we're going to start off with the second part of that main event on Monday Night Raw. WWE made what was played off as a major announcement during that main event when Kalisto was announced as the newest member of the cruiserweight division and the de facto number one contender to compete against Enzo Amore for that title because no one else is eligible after they all attacked him. Guys, hero or zero on not only this move, moving Kalisto to the cruiserweight division, but how it was presented on Raw BC. And first, we just didn't uh, hit it in the main event. The real main event of Raw, like you said, was Miz versus Roman Reigns, and that match delivered. Let's not miss that point by any means. This was your de facto main event second week in a row. And second week in a row, this was a massive hero. And when I say this, it's the idea that the Cruiserweights could somehow be in the main event and make it work. And it was all because of Enzo Amore and the incredible one-by-one verbal undressing. It's the gift that keeps on giving on Raw absolutely hilarious how he broke all the guys down. Did they want a better buildup and reveal to what we got with Kalisto? Of course they did. But did the fact that Kalisto came out to dead air ruin this segment? I say no. I say still overall, it's a slight hero from this regard because you made good on what was wrong. You repaired what was broken. And what was broken was Kalisto having no role on WWE when the reality is he's really small and he's a really good worker and he really belongs in the home for really good small workers, which is your cruiserweight division, made zero sense having him be a job of the stars and not be in this division. So they repaired that. He came out. He's going to feud with Enzo More. Look, he's not really over, certainly not in the mic. He's not really over outside of the fact that he does cool moves. And Enzo, to open 205 Live this week, undressed him beautifully with, with a breakdown of, of his outfit to everything, of really what makes Kalisto not work. But where he does work is in the ring. He belongs in 205 Live. I'm going to reserve judgment on whether Amore and Kalisto can put together a good feud. Let's see what happens. It's a slight hero. I loved, loved last week Enzo closing Raw. I thought it was inventive. I thought it was new. I didn't have a problem with it because the Cowboys were playing on Monday night. 
I had a major issue doing it two weeks in a row. And I found myself watching this on Monday night, and I didn't watch it live because I was watching the Monday night football game, so I I caught it last night uh, on Tuesday night. We taped this on Wednesday. And I'm sitting there thinking, really? Two weeks in a row, we're closing Raw with Enzo Amore and the cruiserweights who no one really cares about. And again, this goes hand-in-hand hand with what I was talking about earlier with, with the Finn Balor going, why are we continuing this feud? Or like WCW, NWO stuff. Like, why why would you believe anyone in WCW could win? It's like, why would anyone think that any of these cruiserweights are important when all you get is Enzo Amore, lack of a better term, essing all over them, crapping all over them, which is what you're getting here. I like Enzo, and I think he's good in this role. But to have him close out Monday Night Raw two weeks in a row, I think is an extreme miscalculation here. I got it last week because you're going up against the Cowboys on Monday Night Football, the biggest draw in the National Football League. This week it was the Redskins and the Chiefs. So we had this argument last week where I said, you guys don't understand the television business because you were just going, why don't you put it in the main event? I did have a problem with it this week. Like, give us something to end the show that's actually halfway decent. Like, I like Enzo Amore. I like this angle. It's not a main event angle. It's just not. I'm sorry. And if they really are going to do this every week and mail in, the last 15 minutes of Raw, I'm not going to freaking watch it or I'm going to fast forward through it. Give me something to end the show on a good note. Even though I watch it on DVR, the point is is that I got it last week because it was the Cowboys. I didn't get it this week. I didn't like it. And we buried the lead here. The lead is not Kalisto. The lead was that Enzo closed the show twice in a row. The Kalisto thing is like, who the hell cares? Maybe they put together a good match. Maybe they don't. It's not about Kalisto. It's about Enzo. So that I don't really care about. But having Enzo close the show two weeks in a row, a massive, massive zero for yours truly. So I totally agreed with BC on Enzo simply dressing down everyone. It was funny. It made me laugh. But Nick is 100% right. It ruins all those wrestlers. And he finally came around, BC, to our side. And if Nick's going to come join us. I was not coming the, to your side. On the right side. No, then that's, that's he's gonna, well, You're about to lose the point I was going to give you. But now Good, you got the. I, I don't care if I lose the point. Oh, no, but no, but we will not put words in my mouth. I did Last week, you guys were wrong. This week, that argument holds merit. No, last week, it did not. No, 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 because last week, I wasn't just talking about that episode. I was saying what they were doing, period, against Monday Night Football, and it, they did the same thing this week, so you're agreeing with it. You no, it let, was the Cowboys last week. But that it's going to be every point. week, though. But it's going to be every week. And, and you know what? And, and if it's, and you know, can, you, can you give me... I get if you don't want to give us Roman Reigns in the main event, but can you give us something better than Enzo Amore in the main event? Like, two weeks in a row, like, like, they really, like, like the creative staff, all the hundreds of freaking writers that they employ can't sit and come up with something better to close the show than Enzo Amore two weeks in a row talking oh. to Drew Gulak and Noam Dar. <laughs> like, really? This is what we're getting at 11.03 p.m. on the East Coast? Drew Gulak? Really? Get this guy off my freaking screen! Look at, listen to that Greek fire. Yes, they deserve to die. I hope they burn it. I mean, this guy, this guy's a Greek. But I mean, are you, are you, like, this is Cedric Alexander, Rich Swan. Get the hell out of my face. Put them earlier in the show or put them on. I don't want to see these guys in the main event. And it's the same freaking promo that he cut last week. It's the same thing. Like, what, what was different about it this week? They basically did the same segment twice in a row, except instead of the Neville beatdown, you got the Kalisto reveal. You know who cared? Nobody. BC, you got a lot. It you... doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. BC, you got a long road back to win this Hero or Zero segment. All right, that was that point goes to Nick. And That's we're... one point, though, guys. Still one point, right? <laughs> yeah, it was but... a nice slam dunk. Still yeah, well, we're here, yeah. but yeah, the, the Silver King's the... Uh, judging here. We'll see how it the goes. The judge has been swayed a little bit in this, uh, in this episode. Okay, also on Raw, guys, number two here. Braun Strowman has now destroyed two former WWE champions in Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose, you know, the current tag team champions, in consecutive weeks. But seemingly... 
Doesn't have much of a storyline outside of that. Nick, hero or zero on them throwing Rollins and Ambrose to the monster? And also, tell me where you think this is heading. Well, I think it's going to... It's gonna. Strowman will get involved in this feud. Like, something to do with the Shield, he's going to get involved. I have no issue with him going over Rollins and Ambrose because, let's be honest, they buried Braun Strowman at no mercy when he lost to Brock Lesnar. So Braun Strowman has to get his heat back. And I love the vicious power slam to Kurt Hawkins, and then he went over Ambrose last week, goes over Rollins this week. It doesn't hurt Ambrose or Rollins to lose to Braun Strowman, but it does help Braun Strowman to get his heat back by going over those two guys. So absolutely no issue there, and you have to build Braun back up after what they did. And obviously we all hated that, the end of No Mercy, sacrificing Braun to Brock so they can build the WrestleMania 34 main event. Uh, make that even stronger. And I do think that Strowman will eventually get involved in the Shield storyline, and I think it's going to be pretty, pretty cool when that happens. And I look forward to a very interesting dynamic, which I'm sure we'll see, of the smarmy heel, The Miz, on the same team with the gargantuan badass Braun Strowman. We've seen Miz play that role to perfection before in the past with others, including The Big Show. So I think that this is going to end up being pretty cool. This is a hero for me. I'm going to give a slight zero here, and mostly because although the matches were good with Braun Strowman against these top-level heels here, the tag team champions, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. It seemed like filler, like like Silver King said earlier, to try to get us to, to move the change, to get us closer to the big pay-per-views coming up. And I'm not convinced one week later that this means these were table setting or seeds planting for Braun to eventually get into this overall shield situation, because now they have more than enough heels to feud with, right? Miz. Cesaro, Sheamus, and whatever's left over of the Miztourage that the that the Roman Reigns didn't beat down with chairs this past week, it's already kind of a crowded house. So in that case, it's a slight zero because why are you jobbing out Rollins and Ambrose right ahead of this big angle? When they're already getting beaten down by Cesaro, Sheamus, and the Miz, why add this extra step outside of just trying to hold viewers with top stars uh, you know, who might be starting the Monday night game and flipping over to see what's going on on Raw? It seemed like you kind of just jobbed out these top stars for not a lot of reason when, yes, Braun Strowman should beat these two guys, but Roman Reigns also went over Braun Strowman. So now if you're comparing Roman Reigns to his former Shield mates, it kind of downgrades his former Shield mates. So I'm not getting it in the overall storyline because it's not like Roman Reigns came back to rescue the Shield. If that was the storyline they were talking about, you know, Rollins and Ambrose are not as strong individually and they got beat down. Well, they need Roman to reunite the Shield to fight off the bad guys. That would be one thing. But in this past week, actually two weeks in a row, it's Roman Reigns who ended on his back with heels standing over him. So I don't really get where we're going here. And when I don't normally get it, that usually means all it is is a ratings grab to move the chains, and that's when you get me annoyed. you got to have a plan. It's a zero. So, BC, I agreed with you coming in, but Nick makes a very, very good point about Strowman needing to get his heat back. And if you're not going to feed him Reigns and Samoa Joe's not there, and you're not going to give him the Miz, who else is on that show that him beating actually matters? And the answer is Ambrose and Rollins, and Nick gets the point. Oh, and what, Nick, what is Nick wearing, like a sexy musk today? And Nick a takes a 2-0 lead. Heading, by the way, by the way, just, just for the record, my, uh, my, she, my, my bond number nine, Chez Cologne, $300, very expensive and smells very good. <laughs> I think you, you maybe gave a few drops to the Silver King. This is crooked comrade judging at its finest. Moving on. You always complain when you're losing. That's who complains, the losers. Number three, Adam Cole made his WWE in-ring debut during last week's NXT main event. He defeated Eric Young of Sanity in that match. BC, hero or zero on how Cole and the faction with the worst name for a faction in WWE history, sorry, second worst name, um, how they're coming together and how they're being presented on NXT. 
Hero zero. Well, well, what's the first? You, you got you can't tease us. You can't no, tickle the. Well, you know, if you tease the bag, you're gonna get the mess. Well, what's, you're what's your least favorite of all time. Welcoming committee is the worst. Oh, that is the worst. You're right about yeah. that. Look, this is. I'm gonna win the point here because I'm gonna add here and put over the Silver King. When Adam Cole in this undisputed era first started, he gave me his typical dissenting reaction, which was basically a text message that said, "These guys might be too small to pull this off." These guys might not be big enough. Where's the muscle in this faction? And my natural reaction was, no, these guys can work. They got an MMA style. Adam Cole is a leader. This thing is going to work. I might have to give this a slight zero, though, after Adam Cole's NXT debut. For some of those reasons Silver King mentioned, when he comes out with his shirt off, I know his history in Ring of Honor. He's a great worker. But to pull off what they're trying to pull off here, which is a invasion of a heel team that wants to take over and beat everybody up, him coming out with his shirt off was a little bit underwhelming. He's in great shape, but he's also small and skinny. And while Adam Cole can work, and that body type can work as a baby face coming from underneath, I'm not sure it's fully having the impact they intended right now. And look, it's not the 1980s. This isn't a big man territory. Times are different. But with that said, there may not be enough muscle in the Undisputed Era. And when you add in the fact that that name absolutely stinks, I'm not really over, you know, overwhelmed here. I'm pretty underwhelmed. Match with Eric Young, pretty good. Good spot where Young, instead of trying to finish off Cole, instead splashed both his teammates and O'Reilly and Fish. Decent spot. Didn't overall really move me. They're going to need something else, and it may in the end, it could be muscle. Because that's what I think they need to act a little bit scarier. Because they're not diabolical heels. They're not coming to kill you. They're coming to beat you up and, and, and take over you. And I think they need to be a little bit more rugged and physical to show that. Let me ask you. How much smaller is Adam Cole than Shawn Michaels? Much smaller. Much smaller. Much smaller. Not slightly smaller. Much smaller. That, 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 that's what you're going with. I mean, Adam Cole's 5'11", 210. What's Michael's? I'm, I'm t- Michael's is like 6'2". I'm talking like in terms of muscle definition. Much smaller. Much, Much. smaller. So I agree that Adam Cole's got to get into the weight room if he's going to eventually make it to the main roster and make an impact. I don't think there's any question about that. But, Bri, I think that you answered your own question there. What eventually got Shawn Michaels really, 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 really over? Diesel. The adding of the muscle to this stable. I agree with you. The Undisputed Era right now needs a little something. And I agree that Adam Cole needs a little something. This is not Ring of Honor, where you do have to be a little bigger. You don't have to be Braun Strowman. But unless you're Daniel Bryan and you catch lightning in a bottle, chances are it's not going to work. They're not going to buy you to that level. But I think Cole is so good in the ring, and he's got so much natural charisma. Get in the weight room. Bulk up a little bit. He's going to be in NXT for, what, 6, 9, 12 months. It's going to be a while before he's on the main roster. I still think that there's time for them to pull it off. I loved what we saw the night before SummerSlam. I think that this has got a lot of potential, and I'm a huge Adam Cole fan Maybe, so I'm going to give this a slight hero thus far, but I do admit that they have work to do. Similar points. BC admitted I said it first and was a little bit more eloquent there. He gets the point, and it's 2-1, Nick, heading into number Silver four. Silver King should not be judging eloquence from anybody, but that, that's a story for another time. <laughs> yeah, good luck winning. Go, 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 go ahead, Mumbles McGee. Let's get to question number four. Good luck winning the next two points. You know my opinion, guys. Nia Jax made a star turn at No Mercy in September, yet on Raw she was back to serving as Alexa Bliss's bodyguard just weeks after turning on her ahead of that fatal five-way match. Mickey James, meanwhile, just secured a shot, title shot that is, at TLC. Here are zero, Nick, on what WWE is doing, not just with Jax, 
but with the Raw women's division. I kind of like it because it's a slow burn right now to, I think, what's going to ultimately be Nia Jax's face turn, like her full face turn when she will eventually beat Alexa Bliss for the women's championship. But I think as sort of a filler program, they could have done a lot worse than what we've seen with Mickey James. And let's credit Mickey James like we did last week. She was electric on Monday night. She was very good. She drew that face reaction. And she's bringing uh, out that side of Alexa Bliss's character, that nasty, dismissive side that I think that we all really like. That and you know Bailey was an interesting foil for Bliss, but not the the best foil for her, right? Because Bailey was very content to just take it and not give it back. Where Sasha Banks was not necessarily the best foil for Alexa Bliss because Sasha Banks could stand toe-to-toe with her. What Alexa Bliss needs is someone that she can mock, someone that she can deride, someone that she can, that you give the feeling like she's a schoolyard bully and make people want to boo her. And that's what you get with Mickey James when they're putting Mickey James over as this older, mature, over-the-hill competitor. And Mickey James is doing a great job drawing face heat. Alexa Bliss is doing a great job um, in her role as the heel. Mickey James is also hot, and Alexa Bliss is scorching. And I don't know what the hell she did on Monday, but she was just through the roof in terms of the sexy factor. So this is a major hero for yours truly, because I think we can see where it's going. Bliss and James, good program, and eventually Bliss and Jax will be a good program. I'm into it. It's a hero. Uh, it's, it's a slight zero and it's disappointing because it overachieved the first week and this week it, what it lacked was like relevant psychology that made sense, right? It's not just the biggest sore thumb from the situation. It's that why is Nia Jax without any explanation in the storyline going back to just being Alexa Bliss's bodyguard and being okay with that, protecting the champion for no reason when she's shown you in recent weeks that she's a, a force and B she's destructive inside, right? She's got ambition. She wants to show you that she's number one. That made no sense. The further psychology really annoyed me when in this match, Mickey James gets beaten down. This was a long match. I mean, it was two segments. It was probably pushing on 12, 13 minutes. And after 12 minutes of getting beaten down, she hits one tornado DDT and that knocks out Nia Jax cold. The same monster who like plows her way through the ringside barrier and stands right up. It just didn't make sense. And to see Alexa Bliss has to come in and force the DQ finish. If Mickey James is really that old, decrepit person you say she is, then why are you coming in to break up the match? And why does one DQ win give you a title shot from Kurt Angle? It just felt too forced and too cheesy. Didn't overachieve like week one. It's a zero. BC nailed it in kayfabe. Nia should be pissed that Mickey James is getting this opportunity. She shouldn't be defending Alexa Bliss. She should be wanting uh, Mickey James in the ring to become the number one contender. That should have been a number one contender's match, if anything. And you're right. She didn't even hit her with the Mick kick. That's BC's point. Absolutely wrecked Nick there. Wait, so, B- so, like the wait, so, so, wait, so, so BC, you, di- you didn't, and no, don't bring up the 04 ALCS. I'm wearing a, a bloody memory. sock right now. I haven't showered in three days. This yeah. is, well, this yeah, is so oh man, you're about to see, you guys are going back and forth on who's winning and losing my favorite. You can't be bringing that's, that up. That's why you're disgusting, Brian, because you don't shower, which is really gross. I was um, at that game, by the way. I was at that game. You were at game seven or game six, game, the, the shilling game. Believe it. Remember when A-Rod tried to knock the ball out of the glove at first base? Bron- bro, it was Bronson Arroyo, that that turd. Um, yeah. You didn't think that this was entered. Like, forget about, like, I, you make some good points, and I understand where you're coming from. I think that there's more to be explained in this. And I'm just, this leads me to this. You did, you Were you not entertained, though, by the Alexa Bliss, Mickey James story on Monday night? Or you just wanted more from it? Because I was entertained by it. It was enough for me. When there's bells and whistles going off around you that's saying this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense, it was hard to embrace it like I did the week before when they overachieved because they were hot and they were talking fun trash. Fair enough. All right. The championship question, number five. After what I judged as a failed Raw invasion last week, the Young Bucks were hit with an actual cease and desist for their two-sweet 
you know, a hand gesture and the words, and a couple other things from WWE. They responded by releasing a cease and desist t-shirt, as they want to do. Hero zero, both for how WWE and the Young Bucks are handling this situation, BC. I think it's going to be a weird indirect hero here, because it kind of makes sense. Like, you poked the bear last week. You tried to kind of make a big leap in sort of this cool retro thing you've been pushing, trying to get attention. Well, they screamed and stood on the mountaintop and said, look at us, like we said. And what did WWE do? They reacted and said, all right, you know, you've poked the bear. You got our attention, so we're going to start to handcuff you a little bit. But I say it's a, maybe a slight hero in the long run, because I think this somehow oddly helps the Young Bucks in the way that their fun invasion attempt, which I said last week really wasn't so fun in the end. It was a little bit forced and cheesy, wasn't able to because now that there is a cease and desist, they are so creative and fun enough that they're probably going to make more mileage out of this and get more attention than they ever would have originally. They've already come out, like you said, with a cease and desist Bullet Club Young Bucks t-shirt. That's pretty fantastic. And you know in their show, being the elite, they're really going to play this storyline and milk it for what it's worth. It's going to end up being a slight hero where I'm not sure they knew it was going to be by attempting that in the first place. Let me tell you something. When the Young Bucks sat down and planned this out, I don't think that they could have scripted it to go any better for themselves than it went. You think the Young Bucks give a damn about the cease and desist? They, they probably heard that and immediately saw dollar signs because that's what they do, and you got to give them a ton of credit for it. They're extremely savvy businessmen. So, of course, the Marks are going to go out and buy the cease and desist, shirt, the cease and desist shirts. I give, I give WWE a hero for this because that's you, you want to go at the corporate giant? The corporate giant's going to smack you down. WWE handled it well, and for the Young Bucks, this is exactly what they wanted. Brian, you're right. It gives them more credibility in, in the, with these characters that they play. They're going to make more money from it. They've almost got more street cred, so to speak, from it because now they're going at the machine and the machine's coming back at them. So I, I like it all the way around. I think WWE right. handled I it well. I right, Nick. You're, you're right. right. You're right, and you went first. So I, I don't, I mean, I think I, I said it better than you did, so maybe I'll get the point. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with you. I can't Remember disagree. that time Nick said this? Not only did he not win it, I felt that he lost it. Nick, <laughs> Nick just lost it, but we had a good run, you know? It was a good run. You know, you did say it a little bit better, but what happened in this edition of Hero Zero is I tried to put you over in the first question. You didn't take it. Then you came back and insulted me. And then you repeated BC's point in five. So you know what happens when that ha- when all that goes down? BC wins. So, so Silver King, you have just admitted that. Silver King, after resisting this entire time and saying he's not a corrupt judge, he doesn't just want to give the point to people that agree with him. Silver King, you have taken your mask off and you have revealed your true self to the audience as being a very miserly, really corrupt judge who's obsessed with himself and only wants people to put him over. You just admitted it, and now you have to admit it. I have put the words in your mouth, and now it's time for you to say them yourself. As you said... Or as BC said about WWE, you poke the bull, you get the horns. Silver King, I want you to admit that you that you judge. No, no, it's both. I, I it's want both. I want Silver King to admit that he judges hero or zero based on who agrees with him more. I want you to admit it because you basically just said it. Now you have to admit it. I judge based on who made the better points. I always do, including but, this time. But no, no, but. Brian, you heard what I heard, right? It sounded like the Silver King admitted it. He just made the list joke, and he didn't follow through. You know what happens when you repeat BC's point? You know what happens? What's that? You You lose zero or zero. You you lose zero or zero. And in this case, Brian, it takes us to a sensational sit-down interview that you and I conducted yesterday on Tuesday with Kevin Owens. Lead us to it, good sir. Yeah, that'll be a hell in the cell this weekend. We will get to that and much more. But to hear KO talk about 
the mindset of being in this business and being a genius in this business. It's not hard to come out of this respecting him even more than you did on the way in. Let's hear from Kevin Owens. In this corner podcast, very pleased to welcome in Kevin Owens just days away from Sunday's WWE Hell in a Cell pay-per-view card from Detroit. That's 8 p.m. Eastern on the WWE Network. Kevin, we're very excited to get you on this program. You'll be in that aforementioned Hell in a Cell match opposite Shane McMahon and what has been an incredible build to this feud. I want to hit you right off the top with something as generic as possible. You're the best pure heel in the business for my money right now. What goes in in 2017 to making a great heel? You know, people throw these words around so much, heel, baby faces, shoot, kayfabe work, all this crap that they hear, uh, you know, they hear other, you know, they hear wrestlers say, but uh, I, I, I can honestly genuinely say that I'm not trying to be a heel. And I don't know if that makes me a good performer or a bad performer. I'm sure many veterans uh, of the industry will have their opinion on what I just said, but I, I try to do the best performance I can. Uh, and I try to achieve the goal that I know is required of me. Uh, you know, and that often, that often leads to people hitting my guts and it leads to other people loving what I do. Uh, I always strive to get the loudest reaction I can, whether it's being booed out of the building or being cheered. I, I, am not doing and it not, like nothing I do is, is in hopes of receiving an, one or uh, either reaction. I just want people to be loud and I want to elicit emotions in them. And that's what I always strive for. So, uh, People ask me, how, how are you such a good heel? I, I, I don't know the answer, man. I'm just being me, and I go with what I, uh, I, I, go with what I need to do to, to, to get uh, the job done uh, on, any, on any show that I'm on in any you know, particular evening. Uh, what's required of me, I just try to achieve that, and uh, I go from there. So uh, if people enjoy my work, that's great. But I'm not, I'm not you know, I, I, don't set out with, uh, I don't set out with a goal in, in terms of getting a reaction. I just try to... Do what I do, do what I can, and do it as good as I can. I'll tell you what, man, you're damn good at it too. Because if you're not trying to do that, I mean, that just speaks volumes to how good a performer you actually are. And what really fascinates me, Kevin, is sort of it's you, the man, and then it's you, the character, right? Because whether you try to do it or not, and I believe you, because you're a damn good performer, and I believe that that's true. You are an exceptional bad guy. And look, you get a baby face reaction sometimes too. You get that reaction to your point. But ultimately, I think you generally will play the quote unquote bad guy in these feuds. Now, from you away well, from So it, here's the thing. Go ahead. Yeah. Let me cut you off. I'm sorry. Please. But here's the thing. I, I, I agree that the role I play is one of a bad guy, sure. The thing is, anytime you watch a show or a movie, uh, you know, more often than not, there's a, an antagonist, there's a, a protagonist, there's people that you want to care for, and there's people that they, uh, you know, the producers, the writers, the, 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 the directors are trying to make sure that people despise. But even the people that you despise in any show or movie, you kind of you kind of can't help but, but, but like as well, because it's part of, you know, it, it's part of, it's just, uh, I think it's normal, if you... If you dislike somebody, well, you care about them in the first place. Otherwise, you would have no feelings. So, you know, the way I'm cast, I guess, is as of a bad guy. But even when I watch movies or, or TV shows, I, t I take from, uh, you know, I, I'll take here and there from characters that I see on TV or, or on movies or even in real life. I've said this before, you know, I how many times do we go out, you know, to the store or to a restaurant and we see a real life heel sitting right there giving, you know, giving shit to the waitress because their salad's not the way they want and they're being a jerk about it. You know, like I take from that as well. 
to make sure that I, you know, I can do my job as good as I can. And I hate I, those guys. You know, right now, my job is to, yeah. So uh, I, I feel like one emotion brings the other, regardless. You know, if you don't like somebody, you care about them anyway. So uh, I, feel, I kind of feel like that goes hand in hand. It definitely does, and it, it dovetails in with the expression, every hero needs a villain, because you can't have a hero if you don't have a villain. So I think you're 100% right about that. I was going to ask one question, but you just took me in an entirely different direction. You mentioned, like, the nonfiction, like the real heels that you see that you may draw inspiration from. How about some fictional characters? Because you said whether it's TV shows or movies that you have watched and said, you know what, I want to incorporate something from that character into what I do. Who has inspired Kevin Owens? I genuinely wish I could give you an answer and give you a specific name, but I can't. I really don't know. I don't. I, I, I take. Uh, I take from from, you know, like I said, I take from people. I take from characters. I take from movies and TV shows and stuff like that. But I kind of almost don't even notice that I do. You know, I uh, I, I love. You know, I, I love watching uh, little details and in, in personalities for 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 people or characters and stuff like that. But you know, something might stick with me, and I won't even know until. I'm trying to think of something I can do here or there, uh, you know, in my job. And then something will come like, oh, I remember seeing somebody do this. And I won't necessarily remember who did it or where I saw it. But that particular trait stuck with me. So I wish I could give you a concrete answer, but I really don't have one. And I know that uh, my, my co-host, Nick, wanted to mention Jacques Rougeau as an, as an influence for you, but we're just kidding right there. Let's move on. No, I've actually, well, for what, for what it's worth, I've tried to be, he, he did train me for a couple of years, and I can say with complete honesty that I've tried as hard as I can to uh, be the complete opposite of what there it is. is. There it is. We wanted to, we yeah, wanted to get so, our stuff yeah. in, Kevin Owens. All right, we got our stuff in. Let's move along to what's most important, the build in this feud opposite Shane McMahon. Obviously, the biggest moment came September 5th with the boss, with the big guy, Vince McMahon, to close SmackDown Live. KO, I'm not going to fool around, right? I'm a 39-year-old man, but I still pop for this crap, all right? This was one of them damn moments, okay? This is also a big moment for your career opposite Vince McMahon in this type of setup. You, you give him a headbutt. He takes plenty of bumps to your biggest moves. This really got the, the spine tingling. What was it like for you emotionally, mentally, executing this portion of this build in this feud? Uh, you know, I've said this before and like I've said it to my relatives and my friends and you know, I think I might have said it in an interview here and there. Uh, there are moments in my WWE career that I will forever remember, uh, you know, the universal title, the, my debut at NXT, my debut on Raw. Winning the Intercontinental title was a huge deal for me. But uh, being in the ring with Vince McMahon uh, and giving him the worst beating that he's probably ever taken outside of a wrestling match, you know, besides the times where we actually faced somebody in the ring uh, bell to bell for a match, uh, I don't think I've ever seen anybody uh, beat Vince McMahon to the point where I beat him. And it was, uh, it was something, man. And it, it's something that will stay with me for a very long time. And when I look back in my accolades and the things I accomplished, uh, when it's all said and done, it's going to be at the top of the list for sure, or very, very close to it, uh, you know, for sure. Well, I mean, you couldn't ask to be put over any larger of a situation by the boss like that. What did he say to you in those moments before the big moment, the headbutt that busted it all open, that really announced that this is a next-level segment here? He talked a lot of smack. He told me I was going to get my ass kicked by Shane, and he was going to expletive me up and uh you know he he wasn't shy about making his feelings known uh as far as how hell in the cell was going to go down and 
you know, then I cracked, I, I cracked him in the head and uh, he stopped talking. Be honest with us, Kevin. In the moments before you went out to the ring to execute that segment, were you nervous? No, I'm not, I don't. I, I genuinely don't get nervous anymore. I'm being completely honest here. I, uh, I feel confident in my abilities. I've been confident for many years now. I don't. I, I, I try to remember when the last time I felt nervous was, and that's not to say that I don't feel trepidation, like trepidation and, and, and excitement. I'm always excited. I'm always, uh, you know. Uh, really looking forward to going out there. And I do get the butterflies, especially when a moment as big as being in the ring with Vince McMahon comes. But uh, I, 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 that's just not, that's not being nervous necessarily. I, I, I feel uh, I have great confidence in my abilities and being in the ring with Vince was no different to me. You know, I, when I showed up on Raw um, and confronted John Cena on my first night, uh, to me, I felt like I was exactly where I belong. This is where I belong. It's the same thing with Vince now two and a half years later. Obviously, I've had a, you know, I have a lot more experience in WWE in front of the cameras and in front of the large audiences, but uh, it, it goes back to, you know, I did this for 15 years before I got here, and I, I never compromised who I was, and I always had confidence in my abilities, and uh, I still do. So I, I wasn't nervous. I, I, felt, I felt right at home. K.O., the fact that there was blood in this segment, I think, really stamped this as something truly special, especially in a PG era when you don't see it often. There was also blood in your incredible NXT debut at the R Evolution pay-per-view in 2014 when when, uh, C.J. Parker gave you that uphand to the nose that seemed to shatter your nose. What does blood communicate in these type of moments that words or actions cannot in today's pro wrestling? Well... Uh, you know, blood is a, a rarity now, and uh, it's 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 something that will happen whether you like it or not. Sometimes, and uh, you know, uh, what we do is very physical. There's no sometimes there's just no way around. Uh, you know, blood showing up, whether uh, you know whether the you know like it'll ha- like C.J. Parker didn't set out to break my nose, but it made for uh, a special visual and a special moment. So really, blood does that to the drama of the thing uh you know it's 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 a i guess you could call it almost a a lucky uh a lucky coincidence i don't know if it's coincidence that's not the word i'm looking for but it's it's uh you know when when it when it happens to to, to be there you might as well uh you might as well use it to your advantage uh kev i'm not saying this to blow smoke i'm saying it because it's the truth anyone that listens to you can tell we can tell our listeners will tell when they hear this you're a really sharp guy, a really smart guy, and very interesting to hear you break down your character, your thought process, the world of pro wrestling. I'm curious, for you, the performer, when you sit down and think about a match, and this is one of those terms that people probably overuse, right, like on the internet, etc. For lack of a better term, a gimmick match like Hell in a Cell, how much different is your mindset and preparation going into a match that has more variables than your average one-on-one in-ring match like you have coming up uh, Sunday night, WWE Network, Hell in a Cell against Shane McMahon? Well, um, you know, matches that bring people out of their comfort zone are, are a lot of fun, whether it's a Hell in a Cell or no DQ last night, study, whatever it is. Even a tag team match. There's something really special about a tag team match when you have guys that know how to do tag team wrestling. You know, and we've been seeing it for months now with the New Day and Bussos who kill it every single time. Nobody can follow them. They rock the house and they leave people wanting more. Uh, and it's, it's just awesome. Those guys are peak, uh, you know, tag team wrestlers. And when they get in there, you see it because you can't get enough. Uh, you know, you say gimmick match tag team. A tag team match is a gimmick match in a way. 
You know, every match that's not a singles match is a bit of a gimmick match or something to a gimmick match is really a stipulation. Tag team match is a stipulation. So there's something exciting about any stipulation. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I do think I perform best when I have, uh, stuff that I can, I can, uh, you know, that I can use, uh, you know, whether it's, it's a cage or a cell or, you know, weapons, tables, chairs, whatever it is. I, I, I do think I, it brings out the best of me. And, uh, I'm, I, I, I don't know why that is, and I don't know. Uh, I just it gets my my juices flowing, and uh, you know I I'm not sure why that is. It just kind of happened, and I noticed that early on into my career. So whenever I've whenever I have the opportunity to be in that kind of match, uh, I'm always looking forward to it, and I always uh, you know I think I have a pretty good track record with those kinds of matches. Honestly, I uh, I think I always deliver on that stage, and I'm looking forward to doing it on Sunday again. You're most noted in this great WWE run, which which started fast, right? Right, you know, right to the top NXT, right to the top on your first day going up against John Cena. But people love to bring up the Sami Zayn feud, which goes, you know, long back in your history before the WWE days. Why do why is the chemistry so good here? What is it about this relationship that has produced such such incredible emotional storyline builds and then the delivery in the ring? Um Again, sometimes you have chemistry with people that is undeniable and it just works. And sometimes you have people where you think, uh, man, those guys would have great chemistry or are going to have great matches and it just doesn't work out that way. Uh, Sammy and I is obviously, uh, it's the latter case for us. We've known each other for uh, over 15 years uh, or just about 15 years actually. And, um, you know, we've been friends, we've been enemies, we've been at each other's throats, we've been uh, by each other's side, we've done it all. We've Every kind of match is imaginable we've been in, pretty much, except maybe the odd Hell in the South, for example. Um, but, you know, we put each, each other through a lot, and we've been there for each other through a lot. So uh, I think that just translates into good chemistry a lot of times. Uh, I, I would say that we're more like brothers than we are friends, because we never chose... You know, you don't choose your relatives. You don't choose who your brother is. You don't choose who your sister is, whatever. You don't choose your family. You're born into a family. In this case, we weren't born uh, into each other's families, but we, you know, from the start of our careers, once we started wrestling uh, on the independent scene in the U.S. and even in, back home in Canada, once we started getting our name out there and being more, uh, more recognized, people just booked us together all the time. And that wasn't our choice. They would just say, oh, Kevin Steen and... Uh, can we get that other guy with the mask? You guys can travel together. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. And then, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there into uh, what we are now. So I'd say, like I said, we're more brothers than we are friends because we didn't choose to be around each other all the time. But we've literally been together for 15 years uh, pretty much every week, except for, you know, maybe a year or two there where he got signed by WWE and I wasn't here yet. Uh, and I think when you get that kind of relationship, that kind of bond, and you spend that much time with somebody, there's, there's, it's very hard not to have good chemistry, you know? So, Kev, we have a segment on our show where we allow listeners to slide into the DMs, ask us questions, we answer them on the show. And a guy that we get a lot of questions about is the aforementioned Sami Zayn. People want to see Sami Zayn in a bigger role. People want to see Sami Zayn in, quote-unquote, bigger programs. Do you feel like Sami Zayn deserves a bigger opportunity than what he's gotten so far at WWE? Uh, I don't think anybody deserves anything more than what they get, uh, because I think everybody gets what they deserve in the first place. I'm not saying Sammy doesn't deserve a bigger role. I'm saying Sammy will get a bigger role eventually. 
you see what I mean? I think a lot of people deserve a bigger role, but I don't think that that's being taken away from them on purpose or consciously. I think everybody will get to where they need to get. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's just what I believe. Uh, some people might disagree strongly and that's okay. Uh, I've never been one to be too concerned about my, uh, my popularity and, uh, you know, amongst the, my coworkers or anything like that. I just, I am who I am and that's just the way it is. So I think Sammy will get his when it's time. And, uh, if you're truly as good as, as you think you are, I'm not saying Sammy particularly, I'm just saying everybody, uh, you'll get to where you think you belong. I think that's what, that's the outlook I've always taken and I've been doing pretty well for myself. So. Uh, absolutely. We will see Kevin Owens take on Shane McMahon in a Hell in a Cell match. That's Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, Little Caesars Arena in Detroit on the WWE Network. In short, in closing here, Kevin Owens, we know you're a big fan of Owen Hart. You named your son after him. Your character, Kevin Owens, named after him. What do you love about the great Owen Hart? So when I, when I discovered... Owen Hart, or when I became a fan of Owen Hart, it wasn't anything particular, particular that he did. What happened was, uh, you know, I was a kid and I had a much older brother who was 10 years older than me. And obviously with him being 10 years older than me, I'd pick fights with him and he would always win. And sometimes I would think that, you know, he was bullying me and this and that. And it was just, you know, siblings rivalry and that stuff. So when I started watching WWE and I saw Bret Hart and Owen Hart and their relationship and and the way everybody uh, loved Brett and kind of shoved Owen to the side, I couldn't help but feel, um, I couldn't help but feel, uh, 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 you know, a sense of understanding for what Owen was going through. And I remember one specific match it was Bret Hart versus Diesel, the Royal Rumble. I want to say Royal Rumble 1995, maybe 94, I'm not sure, but something like that. Uh, Brett was wrestling Diesel for the title, and at one point he grabbed Diesel's legs, brought them around the post, and started wrapping them with. A wire from a camera and in my 11 year old mind that was absolutely horrendous that was not okay that was not cool that's cheating and here came Owen Hart to defend the honor of uh, this great sport by making sure Brett wouldn't get to use the wire and just to, you know at the time to me he was doing the right thing of course uh, you know I wasn't uh, aware of everything that happened between Brett and Owen at the time but to me, that just uh, that just spoke to me. And from that moment on, I was an Owen Hart fan. And just, uh, you know, his performances in the ring and his attitude and uh, just his, uh, how entertaining he was on a weekly basis just made me a bigger fan every week until, uh, you know, he unfortunately passed away. And once he passed away, people came out of the woodworks to talk about how good Owen Hart was as a man, how funny he was, how he was always trying to bring positivity and happiness to the locker room. And if he saw somebody in a bad mood, he would try to cheer them up and all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking if I ever have uh, a child or a son, I'd like to name them Owen because that's the kind of kid I, I want to have. That's the kind of person I want him to grow up to be. And then, you know, many years later, my wife got pregnant and uh, we found out it was a boy and she was on board with naming him Owen. And uh, it's pretty cool because now oh, my son is nine years old, and I can honestly say that he is growing up to be exactly what I hoped he would be. Uh, you know, he's a kind, he's a very kind, loving boy, and he's, uh, you know, whenever somebody, you know, if he sees I'm upset, if he sees my wife's upset, if he sees his little sister's upset, uh, if, he sees our, if he thinks our dogs are sad, he tries to cheer them up. 
so, you know, mission accomplished in a way. Um, and, yeah, I mean, if you're asking me what's the one thing I loved about Owen Hart more than anything beyond him as a performer, I think what I love the most is all the stories that people told uh, about him after he passed, just how kind and generous and nice he was. That's my favorite part. I've never met him, and I wish I would have had the chance to meet him. But even now, you know, I get to, to work with Natalia every week. I see her, and we talk about Owen a lot. And everything she tells me about him just, uh, you know, makes me a bigger fan of Owen Hart, the man, as well as the performer. Kev, I'm going to pay you a compliment, and then we're going to let you go here. Your versatility as a performer, Festival of Friendship, the stuff with Jericho, very funny, the violent stuff that you do, you. that dichotomy. Owen could do that, too. Owen could give you the sheer violence. He could give you the anger. He also has the lowest-key, funniest line in the history of wrestling, Survivor Series 94, after he gets his family to throw in the towel, lose the title to Bob Backlund. He goes, this is the greatest Thanksgiving of my life. And I remember 11 years old, I was laughing my ass off, Kevin, at that line. The greatest thing, just cost his brother the championship, greatest Thanksgiving of his life. Kevin, you're awesome, man. You've got an amazing mind for the business. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. This was an absolute honor and privilege for us. Thank you very much. Go out there and kill it this Sunday night. Hell in a Cell, WWE Network against Shane McMahon. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. You know, I, I've got to say about that Kevin Owens interview, I've conducted a lot of interviews in my life, pro wrestlers, athletes, etc. I don't think I've ever talked to a sharper, smarter person than Kevin Owens. And I mean that sincerely. Brian, he's operating on a different plane than most people that we talk to. He almost sounds enlightened, if, if that makes sense. He, he gives you that, you know, you sometimes say, you know, this can be Shakespeare when it's done really well. Well, he's sort of operating, it seems, on that level, like a virtuoso on guitar who's not playing chords and notes, right? He's playing colors and sounds. I, I, that might sound like a hyperbole, but I really think you got a piece, a peek inside his mind to see how he operates, how he envisions the business, how it, how it relates to him. You know, it, it kind of sounded that first when he said, well, you know, I don't really look at it like, you know, good guys and bad guys, heels and villains. It sounded like, all right, all right, we're not on your level. You're not going to speak with us. You hate when we use words like Mark and Pop. But then I realized, no, it's because this guy isn't thinking of the black and white brush strokes of, of how people look at pro wrestling from the outside looking in. This guy's deep inside, and he's really smart at what he does. I, I, and, and, and he was great. So many great answers. And, and how about his stuff at Owen Hart at the end? Um, that was just sensational, man. I was kind of getting the chills listening to him talk about Owen. And he's, just, again, so damn smart and so damn in control of what he's doing. And how about his answer about Sami Zayn, where I had to ask him, because, and look, you guys listen to this podcast, you know I killed the Sami Zayn-Owen stuff a couple, what was it, last week, a couple weeks ago. So I kind of had to ask him. I can't not ask him about Sami Zayn. And he kind of gave a roundabout answer when he's going, well, first, no one deserves anything. He's right about that. And then kind of said, when Sammy's time will come, it will come. And until then, it's not going to come. And I just thought that was pretty matter of fact. I don't think he said it with malice. I don't think he said it to insult Sammy Zane. I just think that he's just a straight up matter of fact type dude who's just and that the way it is is just the way it is. I don't think I love when he corrected and said, you know, I wouldn't say that Sammy and I are friends, but we're more like brothers. That was sort of a fun way to, to, to sort of break that up. But when I hear him say the things that you mentioned, sounds a lot to me like somebody who put him over and put the belt in his hands. It sounds to me that while in his prime as a performer, he has the same command and grasp of the business that Paul Triple H Levesque once did. And I know it's a different situation because he married into the family and all that. I actually think it's I'm a great saying, analogy. I think it's a great analogy. 
Long term, I could see KO as being a road agent, as being one of these, you know, Arn Anderson or Michael P.S. Hayes guys who stays with the company long after their ingring career is over and is a big influencer on the backstage politics and in, in, in the direction of the creative. Well, you have to remember, this is a guy who worked 50 independent promotions. He started at age 16 in Canada. Um, he's held titles, you know, all across the country. He has worked and earned, and so has Sami Zayn, for, you know, to his credit as well, but he has worked and earned every shred of success that he has right now. So what he's saying is, I know that my brother, Sami Zayn, has done the same, and I think he's going to get there as well. Maybe not 2017, maybe it'll be 2019, but you just made a really good point, BC. I think KO is in the position now and will be in the position the next time he gets the title to put Sami Zayn over as a face champion. He can finally get that comeuppance. They can finally make wow. Sami Zayn the champion. And if they really do a three, four-year build going back to NXT, five-year build, and Sami Zayn finally wins, can you imagine? You're talking possible by then, Daniel Bryan level pop. I was going to say, if they Sammy do it the right way, have to be handled with the Daniel Bryan gloves to make that work. But that's one hell of a future booking and look to the future of how KO would let his own life story come full circle and give back to the guy that has made him so many times. Wow, Nick, we just we just made a moment there. Yeah, did you feel that? And hope you guys enjoyed the interview with Kevin Owens as much as we did. It was gold. I really love talking to KO, and KO will be main eventing Hell in a Cell coming up this Sunday night from Detroit on the WWE Network again. We are plugging the event. Why? Because WWE gave, gave us Kevin Owens, damn it. So this Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, WWE Network, it's Hell in a Cell Live from Detroit, Michigan. Let's break it down. Um, we're going to skip past the stuff that needs to be skipped past. The only thing we'll say about the kickoff show, Gable and Benjamin against the Hype Brothers, Mojo Rawley and Zack Ryder. I think this will probably be when these two split. They've been teasing it for quite some time. Bry, will we see that? We should because it's getting ad nauseum at this point. But, yeah, not enough to move the needle. I'll be watching like I will be, but I'm not going to say I'm going to be feeling anything on the inside. All right. right. That's the truth. So Bobby Roode and Dolph Ziggler, I actually liked what they did on SmackDown on Tuesday night. Ziggler came out and cut what I thought was actually a pretty good promo on Bobby Roode saying you're nothing but an entrance. And then Roode does the exaggerated glorious deal here. I'm worried that Roode's just going to go over which, I mean, they kind of have to put Root over since he's new on the main roster. And I don't know where Ziggler's going to go from there, but... I, they, I, I am, I am... Did they have to put AJ over against Chris Jericho in 2016? They didn't. So you think there's a chance Ziggler wins this match? I'm saying if he doesn't, then he's the same frustration we have with Bray Wyatt. He's the 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 performer version of Bray. If Bray Wyatt is all about like the the promo and the storyline, then Dolph Ziggler is the in-ring version of Bray Wyatt, if that's the way it's going to go, where it's stop and start. You know, every time you think you got a new angle that's going to push Dolph to the top, no, he has to job again. I'm saying that they could make this work where you get both guys over and Dolph Ziggler could still be the guy who wins the feud in the end. I'm not going to say that he can win this match. I'm going to say Dolph Ziggler will win this match. I hope so. I really do. I want I want Dolph to win. It's so that, like you know every week we've said well the Dolph stuff it's kind of lame but if it pays off it'll make more sense. It's we're still in that mode because this week I wasn't sold that it was great. I still need to see a payoff in this and I hope you we get that payoff on Sunday and I hope Dolph goes over cuz he needs it. I mean, come on. The guy needs it. The guy you you guys may love Cesaro and do that whole he should be a star thing. Well, I'm doing that thing for Ziggler in the back of my mind every single week. And I think I think, by the way, Ziggler, you have more of a case than you do with Cesaro. And I yes. love Cesaro. Yes. And, and I would admit that I want to take a second here to fully appreciate the comedic stylings of Rusev, because the guy is a is a great in ring performer, and he's been great as the like the brutal, devastating, dastardly heel. He is really 
really funny and understated humor on the microphone when he goes, Randy Orton ruined Rusev Day. The whole concept of Rusev Day is really funny. And I think they're going to keep going with that because he goes, there will be more Rusev Days, more celebrations. The guy's absolutely hilarious. I'm actually kind of buying this Rusev Randy Orton program, Bri. I'm buying everything you said about Rusev. And every time he says happy Rusev Day, I pop and have that same feeling of, man, he should be doing more. But no, I don't care about this feud. They haven't given me any reason. What's the storyline? There is none. And I'm sorry, Randy's coming off of the gender run that that was kind of underwhelming. And so is this one. I don't, I'm not trying to be that guy. No, right? I'm being honest. I have a lot of positive things to say about uh, this pay-per-view and SmackDown. This is not one of them. This is a waste of our time. It is, it is not a waste of time because it's been entertaining in the lead up. You have not Ru- been entertained by what's, what, we, what we've seen in the last couple Rusev of weeks? Rusev is extremely entertaining. This match will be a waste of time. No, because the match is going to be good, though. They're both good workers. It's not going to be a night. They did the seven second at SummerSlam. They did the nine second on SmackDown. They're going to give these guys some time. The match will be good. I just don't have any. Like, there's other things on this card I care about. I just don't have desire to see either of these guys against one another. I want to see Rusev in something more meaningful. And Randy, you got some kids, man. Take a couple months off. Come um, back. Wow. How about Silver King going wow. to Randy Orton? I'm kind of obsessed, by the way, with the insertion of Aiden English into into the Rusev stuff. I don't know why I just... Aiden English absolutely... <laughs> yeah, a- a- Aiden English absolutely slays me. I think him and Rusev are very funny together. I hope Rusev goes over in this match. Of course, I have a feeling that Randy Orton will. The SmackDown Tag Team Championship, Brian, this match is probably going to steal the show. It's going to be the wait. one. It's going to be the one. The new it's going to be fantastic. against the Usos inside the cell. And they've handed off the belt now, what, like four times going back six months? And for me, that is too much. But what can you complain about? The promos leading up have been pretty darn good. The original rap battle, which started this whole thing off, was fantastic. And they're giving you the B-plus to A-minus match every single pay-per-view, like three in a row. It's going to be four. And to be really honest, in terms of a prediction, it almost doesn't matter, right? All we predict is that we'll get a good match. And I think that you'd almost sometimes, not every time, right? I, I'm the guy who needs meaning in a match. I'm a guy who needs to know why two guys hate each other, not just that they're competing for titles. This is one of those rare feuds where it doesn't even matter. Just let the magic in the ring happen. You nailed it. Who cares who wins? The match is going to be awesome. It's inside Hell in a Cell. It's going to be great. How good was the promo on SmackDown that they cut last night? The Usos are so damn good at that back and forth promo where one guy's says one thing and the other guy backs him up and they get to that they build to that dramatic crescendo at the end where, where, where they're both going off and the Uso pet it's not it's not paranoia it's the Usos they're awesome New Day is awesome the matches are great what more can you ask for this is one of the best tag team feuds not just in recent history but in the 30 years that I've been watching wrestling oh, that's how wow. good this has been bold statement and, and isn't it true that in spring break 09 you did catch a case of the Usos but that was, that was another separate story was that 2009 right? that might have been like closer to like 2003 but yeah yeah, yeah, sure. So yes. you're 100% right about that, Nick. I, I completely agree. And this is actually, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago on the show, this is either the first true tag team Hell in a Cell match or first like since 1998. I forget. There's been some tornado ones. There's some, been some uh, six-man tags, et cetera. But two on two inside a cell. I am absolutely jacked for this. And I will say this. Outside of Roman Reigns and Braun Strowman, and I'm even saying over Brock Lesnar and Samoa Joe, This has been the best feud since WrestleMania. It's been long. It's been back and forth. It's been even. You've seen good things inside the ring on the mic. You've seen amazing matches. And guess what? There hasn't been a single, not one, down moment for months. This is going to steal the show. I wish it was a co-main event instead of the WWE title match. I am all in on this. 
You do need the blow off here, though. It's in a cage that old school. That means a blow off. But moving on now, guys, to a match that doesn't move me at all because they haven't given you a reason to Nick the U.S. Championship. AJ Styles, Baron Corbin. I, what is Ty Dillinger going to be in a referee shirt? He's spent too much time in this feud. I've listened to the promos. I still don't get what's going on, and I still don't care. I will say that I liked AJ's promo um, to Corbin on Tuesday night when he basically said, all you do is lose opportunities. You get all these opportunities, and you do nothing with them. So I'm interested to see where they go with it here. And I think that this is going to show you how they really feel about Baron Corbin. Because if they do like Baron Corbin, you kind of have to put Baron Corbin over here because you've built him up as a titanic loser. They've re- Reference constantly all the losing he's done where AJ said, you know, if you took it more seriously, maybe you wouldn't have lost to John Cena. Maybe you wouldn't have had the unsuccessful money in the bank cash in. So I think we're going to get a really interesting look as to how Vince views Baron Corbin coming up on Sunday night. AJ's in the match, so the match will be really good. I, I kind of don't know what's going to happen here. I could see it going either way, and that intrigues me. So I, Bri, am actually kind of into this. Styles against Corbin. You pulled me back in. You gave me a reason to see. You gave you you put some stakes on it. It's not storyline stakes. You put real-life stakes on it. You said, we're going to find out if they actually care about Baron Corbin. That is something to look out for in this one. Because if they don't care about Corbin, and if AJ goes over clean, what the hell do you do with Baron Corbin from here? Because he will have lost quite a bit since winning Money hey, in the maybe Bank. Hey, make him sister Abigail. I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I think they could do worse than that. I mean, I don't know how he would go over as the sister with the with the female, but you know, Baron Corbin might not be so bad with Bray Wyatt. That's actually not a not a bad idea. How about the SmackDown Women's Championship? I will shamelessly be pulling with Char- for Charlotte Flair. Why? Because she came on our show last week and she was sensational as she challenges the champion Natalia. I don't like anything that sounds like you pulling during a women's match. I'll just say that right there. But <laughs> I will say fair. that look, Charlotte's got to win. Put that hasn't belt. happened, by the way, since the days of Sable and uh, and and, and, and Tori Wilson. So yeah. It's been very, a long time. Very, very good point. Uh, it's got to be the belt's got to be on. You know, there's no real storyline, right? There's that. That's kind of the problem here. But you can fix it all by putting the belt back on Charlotte. That's where it belongs. Like, like shout out to Natalia for doing well. But there's not, again, a real storyline here. And this week on SmackDown showed you that there's nothing to care about outside of seeing Charlotte with the belt. Charlotte wins the match. Carmella cashes in money in the bank afterwards. Carmella becomes the champion. And then Carmella and Charlotte embark on a feud, which will also feature You think James so? Ellsworth. You think they're going to break glass here? And we're going to see the briefcase? I think that we'll see the briefcase coming up on Sunday night. Can I can I toss something else in here, too, while we're at it? Um, and, I, and I'm happy that I remembered this because I wanted to mention it. I really, really, really like the Corey Graves-Byron Saxton dynamic on SmackDown. I think that SmackDown announced team has gotten better since Corey Graves took over for JBL. And Graves is so damn good because remember, remember what he was saying during the Charlotte, the tag team match that Charlotte was in with Becky Lynch where he doesn't like that Charlotte and Becky are such good friends and Charlotte isn't the vicious queen that she once was. I thought that was terrific. So little things like that and the byplay with him and Saxton where, where I forget what the exact line was, but Graves says something to the effect of like, who doesn't want to be a part of this? And Saxton goes, I would love to. And Graves goes, well, you can't. And he goes, you never let me be a part of anything. They are developing a pretty good rapport those two uh graves and saxon i don't know if you guys agree or disagree but i was struck by that on uh on smackdown and felt like i needed to bring it up that whole trio also he's really good with tom phillips as well and they you know previously worked together so i agree with it's you actually a, it's I a agree more with that it's a more comfortable spot smackdown is and i think i said i may have even said it when it happened but smackdown's a more comfortable spot for Corey graves than raw that doesn't mean he's not great on raw he is great on raw but he's better on smackdown 
And I, I want to give a quick Tom shout Phillips out. We, did, we don't have time for the DM segment this week, but I did get a DM slide from at Daniel Greer, where he basically asked, do you think Graves could pull off the announcer slash manager role because he's so good on the mic? And this was in reaction to the, to the death of Bobby Heenan, RIP. I think he's good enough, guys. Yep. I think he's good enough, too. Definitely. There, there's no question about it. Um, I know Silver King doesn't think this next match is good enough, and he might be right. Jinder Mahal defending the WWE Championship against Shinsuke Nakamura. Guys, what are we doing yeah, here? What are we doing here? Yeah, that's the thing. What are we doing here? If the belt doesn't fall in Shinsuke's lap, finally, there's no other outs. Adam, there's no other ways that you could keep the belt on Jinder, right? Like, it's a lose-lose. So... Jinder, Jinder Mahal retains the title, right? And, and beat, they are going to India in December. And they're going to right? India yeah. with with the Raw brand, so you would want your other champion on that show. So he retains, and now Shinsuke Nakamura has lost to Jinder Mahal twice. And Shinsuke also isn't really getting over on the mic. And what have you done with him? He's now the artist, the rock star. He can't beat Jinder Mahal. Jinder Mahal, uh, let's say Shinsuke wins. What's Jinder Mahal now? He's a guy who held the WWE Championship who no one thought did a good job, now doesn't have the title. So why would you care about him at see, all? I th- I th- see, I because th- you you don't like gender. and you I hate- like gender. No, no, no. no. But, but but you color everyone with this pride, with this, with this, with this brush as if everyone hates Jinder Mahal. I don't hate Jinder Mahal. I like Jinder Mahal as a person on this podcast. He gave us an incredible interview. I think good he man. has some talent, but he is not talented enough in the ring or on the mic to carry the most prestigious championship in all of wrestling. This isn't the universal title. It's not the U.S. title. It's not even the IC belt, which for me is number two most prestigious. It's the WWE championship, and Jinder Mahal is doing a terrible job with it because he never should have had it in the first place. Well, that's your opinion. I, dis- I disagree with that. Well, it's ground. Well, you know, it's weird. It's a weird dynamic. I love Jinder, and I love seeing him get to overachieve, but I hate, like Adam says a lot, what it does to the hierarchy of the belts, Correct. the meaning of the belts, and the overall brand. And I think it's been a Groundhog Day run of promos, and now it's a Groundhog Day run of title defenses because you are out of outs to justify him winning again. The cheating angle has been played out with Randy Orton so many times. And then with Shinsuke, there's nothing left. You know, there's really nothing left. Like if they let him win clean occasionally and built him up as like, hey, he's dastardly and this new finisher is devastating. Okay. Like I still wouldn't maybe like it as much because I don't think he's good enough for a 15, 20 minute match. But if you put him over clean, okay, at least you're building someone. They're not building anyone. He's not even a good chicken crap heel. See, I actually have enjoyed the promos leading up to this, mostly because of the involvement of the Singh brothers, and, and I do fully admit that. And again, there... The Singhs are great. The, when they come out and they do the Shinsuke hand motion, like mocking him, <laughs> it's very funny. They, I think they're hilarious, and they have added a lot to the, uh, to the proceedings here. Interesting noting about Nakamura. He can't talk, obviously. And like when I say, I think sometimes we say like, Cesaro can't talk, like Nakamura actually can't really speak the language. So like that's actually, we're being truthful when we say that. He still got cheered quite a bit on SmackDown. He's butchering his lines like he's clearly like trying to remember them. He still got cheered, though. So the crowd is still pretty into him here. I am willing to give this one shot here. Let's see how this goes. I got a feeling that Jinder's going to win and Jinder's going to retain. And then the question becomes, what do you do with Shinsuke Nakamura from here? So I'm actually fascinated to see how this plays out and this, how the match is going to be. This is the one thing I was gonna, that, I, that I forgot to say. Don't you want Shinsuke Nakamura, when he does win the WWE title, to beat someone good? Like, don't you want him to actually beat, you know, AJ Styles or Kevin Owens? Don't you want to put him over? I don't think him beating him would do anything. I mean, I, that makes sense, right? It, it would be it would be good. It would it would puff him up. But I don't think it's fully necessary because we thought Jinder was a transitional champion to begin with. 
So as long as you just get the belt off from sooner than later, we can actually start Shinsuke's future. And hopefully that future is opposite AJ Styles. I totally agree with that. But let's not let's not get things twisted here. Like this is not like Stone Cold Steve Austin winning his first championship, like going over Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. Nakamura is not at that level yet. So I agree. I don't know that it makes much of a difference who he beats. And again, I just want to reiterate, I don't know how the hell this match is going to end. Kind of curious to see how it's going to go down. And I can't wait for it, Bri. You heard the interview with Kevin Owens. This match is going to be great. It's going to be physical. It's going to be awesome. Hell in a cell, false count anywhere. Shane McMahon and KO. Yeah, it's, I mean, the build has been great. It, I, this week, there was a lot of high spots at the end with Shane McMahon. It was okay. It was good. It moved the chains. It got me excited. It didn't really add much to the overall storyline, but I don't see how this won't bring it in the end because every time Shane, outside of that hiccup he had at Survivor Series last year where he did suffer the concussion and, and he kind of felt like he was forced into that match, forcing himself in in the booking where it didn't make sense. Outside of that, in the big moments when Shane dials himself back in, he delivers. He raises the rent, not to the same level as VKM, but he does raise the stakes when he's in a match. I don't know how they're going to do it. I know that Silver King doesn't love the stipulation edition, but I feel like this can't lose. I love the stipulation edition. I don't know why, like, because it, it's just going to mean that it's going to be more physical, and they're going to do a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff. I think. And here's the other thing: Shane McMahon's limited, right? Like, he put on a great match against AJ Styles. That's AJ Styles. Like, it's not an insult to Kevin Owens to say he's not as good as AJ. So you almost need more of that. Like, where are they going to go around the arena? Because they're not going to be able to put on a 30-minute classic. The Shane Undertaker Hell in a Cell match at WrestleMania was a total disaster, minus the, the leap off the top of the cell. So I kind of like that stipulation, and I disagree, Brian, with what you said. I loved what we saw at the end of SmackDown. I thought Kevin Owens was masterful in that role, and I thought Shane played it pretty well as well. I think we're going to see blood. I think it's going to be very physical, and I think ultimately Kevin Owens will come come out on top. So, I don't like the stipulation because it's them showing their cards. It's already a Hell in a Cell match, so you can fight wherever you want in the arena, but the point of the cell, as we're going to discuss later in Pay-Per-View Rewind, the reason this Hell in a Cell is created is to keep two people that really hate each other inside a structure. Now, we know from all the 17 Hell in a Cells that have preceded this, that doesn't often happen. They often get out of the structure. But what you're telling people now is, hey, guys, a lot of this match is going to be spent outside the ring, in the crowd, in the backstage area. And as someone, and look, we're going to be, we're going to be watching on TV, but as someone who has attended many WWE live events, the worst thing about attending them is when a match happens backstage. Because what are you doing as a paid customer in the main event? You're watching on the big screen. So your ticket isn't as good. As someone who likes wrestling and who wants to see Shane and Kevin do as much crazy stuff as they can do off the cell, I want them in the cell. I don't want them by the merchandise stand. I don't want them at the loading dock. So unless there's amazing spots planned and maybe there's some pre-taped stuff they're going to do, who knows? I don't think it was at all necessary. You can still do all of that stuff without showing your cards and saying, we're going to be doing all this stuff, guys. It's not just going to be a sell match. That's my problem with the stipulation. I just want to say to that, I was in April 25th, 1999. I was in Providence for Backlash in your house. The Boiler Room Brawl. Uh, you remember with Mankind, Mankind and Big Show? Yeah. Okay. I didn't hate that inside the arena. That's all I'm saying. Then again, that had Stone Cold and The Rock in the main event, so maybe that was part of the package. Yeah, so I think this match is going to be good. And I am cautiously optimistic that this card is going to be pretty good coming up yeah. on Sunday Night Hell in a Cell. And we will have for you the Instant Analysis podcast at the conclusion. KO's got to go over, Nick. Obviously, KO's got to go over. He's yes. got to. In, in the, you put him over with Vince. Now you let Shane do the next step. Hulk Hogan was right when Silver King read those tweets a couple weeks ago. And then we'll see what happens with Kevin Owens once this feud is complete, as we assume this will be the blow-off hell in a cell. Speaking of hell in a cell, Bri, that takes us to this week's edition 
of pay-per-view rewind. Brian Campbell, asleep at the wheel. Ready? I'm going to do the tee up again, and we're going to leave this in the show because, Brian, you are never ready for it. And I always try and give you like five seconds because I see you scrambling on Skype. So, Brian, it is time for this week's edition of Pay-Per-View Rewind. I thought that this was a great choice for this week's uh, edition um, by the Silver King. Bad Blood, Hell in a Cell, Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker, Silver King. Take us through it. Sure. So let's just start kind of at the beginning here. The reason I chose this, most importantly, is the first ever Hell in a Cell. And like I said, the reason this match was created was to keep two people who really hated each other, who had a rivalry and a feud that needed to be settled, keep them from leaving the structure. And we, that didn't happen. You guys will get into that a little bit when you give us you know, your takes on it. But I want to kind of set the stage for how this match came to pass and its place in WWE history. So HBK was a guest referee for a Bret Hart Undertaker uh, championship fight at SummerSlam. There were multiple stipulations in there. But HBK, long story short, would get fired if he screwed Bret. What ended up happening is Bret brought a chair into the ring. Uh, HBK swung into Bret. He ducked, hit the Undertaker, and he had no choice but to count one, two, three and get Bret over The Undertaker in that match. So Taker Beach, he responds by beating HBK within an inch of his life at the following in your house. But that match is a draw. So then they set up the Hell in a Cell to ensure that there's a victor. After this match, guys, what happened? HBK, Shawn Michaels, Survivor Series 1997, the Montreal Screwjob. So this is dead center in one of the most important rivalries in WWE history. It had Bret Hart. It had The Undertaker. It had Shawn Michaels. And it had someone else as well. So, BC, talk to me. What was your reaction to watching Bad Blood '97 again? Holy crap, guys! I mean, look, like we'll be—we're always really honest with the with the listeners here. In my '80s fandom, I can remember every moment, every second, every word, every facial expression. My '90s fandom, especially the late '90s, on the other hand, right? You know, I want to talk to Samson a few hundred thousand times. Can't really <laughs> remember all the moments. It's sort of how the human body works. I knew the ending of this match. I knew the pay-per-view from watching on my black box back in the day in Naugata, Connecticut. I forgot everything that happened in the middle of this match. And I popped and marked out as if I was watching it for the first time. Some of it came back to me. Some of it is just a blur from back then. This was a hellacious and incredible match. So many things I could point out. So many big moments that we're going to mention. The performance level. The storyline. Look, it's really hard sometimes in these gimmick matches involving a cage to tell a really great story. A lot of times it's spot heavy or it's just violent heavy. This was both of those yet played out in this perfect storyline where it just kept escalating and getting better. And yes, they used the violence and the spots to make those leaps, but it was constructed and sewn together with such brilliance in Michael's blade job. Just for example, just that blade job timing was perfect. The thickness and volume of it was perfect. That blade job spoke Love thickness so and much. volume. I know you love the thickness <laughs> and the volume. I mean, it spoke so much about the effort Michaels put in and how dangerous that match was. I could not have popped any more guys, and it may have been a slow start like a lot of these matches are, but everything all changed with some one one spot after another, and it changed for me with the pile driver on the steps of Undertaker. That started to signal a turn of events where this thing started to get nuts. This was 
this might be the best match in WWF history. For me, the best match is actually another Michaels Undertaker match, and this is going to be a larger point that I'm going to make. WrestleMania 25 is my favorite wrestling match of all time, with all apologies to Omega, Okada, and the great trio that they put on the trilogy this year. WWE has always been my favorite thing. I watch Michaels and Undertaker their whole career for me. Uh, Michaels Undertaker at WrestleMania 1 from 25, the first one, not the career match at 26, but number 1 at 25 is my favorite wrestling match of all time. I'll be honest, this match might be better than that one. This might be the best match in the history of the medium, in the history of professional wrestling. That's how good this match was. And for me, this match is better than Austin Bret Hart, the street fight at WrestleMania 13. I think this match... I have to agree with you, and people people will want to fight you for that statement, but holy crap, it kept getting better, Nick. I didn't think it could be this good. This was Shawn Michaels' magnum opus. This is the greatest performance in the career, the legendary career of my favorite wrestler of all time, the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, because it brilliantly ties in so many different things together about his character. A, you've got his smug, smarmy, dismissive personality when he beats up the cameraman in hysterical fashion. And how about that brilliant bit of storyline booking where it doesn't seem to make sense. Why is Michaels beating the crap out of this cameraman? Like, he got in his way, so he punches him, right? That's funny as it is. But he keeps going back to him. And, and Bri, play it for us, Bri. Uh, what happens as a result of this? <laughs> That's amazing. Let's do this job. That's well, there's going to be a lawsuit here. We apologize to the family. We apologize to the family. Again, the family of that young cameraman. <laughs> who just senselessly battered by Michaels. You know, we might want to get some medical attention and for the cameraman. I don't know if anybody can. How about that selling right there from both Vince and JR? Those were separate moments spliced together. But how about the selling there of what that spot did and what it meant? I mean, that's for 97, that's like next level stuff. And it was, for me, it just kept getting funnier and funnier and funnier and funnier. It was just, it was awesome. And it turned out to be a brilliant plot device because they had to get the cameraman out because in the storyline, he's brutally injured. And that's how they end up getting out of the cell for the first time is because Michael's, as they're bringing the cameraman out, Michael's barrels out. So that was brilliant. So you had had the the comedic relief in this match that was really sensational. But back to Michael's here and his performance. So not just does he give you the comedy, but he takes bump after bump. He bumped his ass off in this match. He must have been sore for months after this match because he just bumped like crazy for The Undertaker here. Some several just major shots. The chair shot at the end, going through the table, back body drops onto the top of the cell, a press slam on top of the cell. Like This was incredible, incredible stuff from Michaels. And Undertaker also provides a great foil for Shawn Michaels. Undertaker is obviously not at the level of performer as the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels. He can't be. He's too big. He's limited. But these two always had on-screen magic. They gave you three of the best matches in the history of professional wrestling. Bad Blood 97, WrestleMania 25, WrestleMania 26. This match was, I dare I say it, I think this match was close to perfect. And even with the finish, Bri, which I'll let you get into here, it dovetailed in with the story that was being told. This might be the best 
professional wrestling match of all time. I want to ask you, because you mentioned something good. You said this may be the best performance, the magnum opus of Michael's career. So are you saying, in a sense, that the first Undertaker match at WrestleMania with Michaels was almost 50-50, them pulling themselves together to produce arguably the greatest match ever, but that this match was more of Michaels. That Taker was great, but I texted you something. I said Michaels in this match is A+++++, where Undertaker's pretty damn good, like a B+, and it was almost like he lifted Undertaker up to a higher level. See, I, I don't know that I would say that. I think it's different because the story was different, because the story at 25 was, can Michaels end the streak? No one had ever kicked it. Now, Kane actually, and, and we'll get to Kane in a second, kicked out of a couple tombstones at WrestleMania 14, which came up later in 1998, um, the next WrestleMania after this Survivor Series. But no one had really kicked out of the tombstone prior to Kane. And when I remember watching 25 when Michaels kicked out of the tombstone, thinking this is the best match I've ever seen. And then the ending of that match was so great. So it was just, it's just different. I, I don't know that it devalues Michael's performance in that match. I just think that it was a different story in this match as opposed to yeah, that one. Yeah, you have to remember here, the story of this match, the purpose of the match, outside of the last part, which we'll talk about in a minute, was getting Shawn Michaels to Bret Hart so they could have that match that they had been building for months. And they also, and this is where I'll bring in the end of the match, they also ended the match with a six-month build that culminated BC in this moment. You're talking about you're talking about a historic Vince McMahon call right there. That's got to be Kane. You're talking it's about a, the music set that stage though, Adam. Uh, that that yes. call and that moment wouldn't have been as good. That music, if that music wasn't brilliant in the timing of it and how it's like a church organ, but it leads into destructive, almost like satanic rock. I mean, everything about that reveal is perfect. Classic Vince. It's he didn't say it's got to be Kane. He said it's got to be. It's gotta be Kane! It's classic Vince McMahon. Kane rips the door off the cage, obviously, which is gimmicked. Rips it off, gets in the ring, tombstones the Undertaker. Michaels puts one arm over him. Earl Hebner does the exaggerated 85-second pre-count to <laughs> well, for dramatic Well, let's credit. He oh, had yeah. gotten bumped when Kane ripped the door off. He threw Hebner into that cage <laughs> so damn yeah. hard. Like, that's a top-shelf bump that Hebner took there. Um... Uh, let's just say we want to give our ratings here. I get. I, 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 say, I said there were moments that escalated. I thought the pile driver on the steps took it to a next level. I thought the bump with the cameraman, which opened the cage door, took it to a next level. Then they went to the top of the cage, guys, which for 97 certainly took it to a next level that led to Michaels bumping through that table. And then to have that kind of reveal for the finish, which started a whole new chapter and era. Man, that's brilliant stuff, which leads to this match rating. Well, what you just said, they told you what was in play in a Hell in a Cell match, and they actually made it more difficult. for. And this is the first ever Hell in a Cell. They made it more difficult for every single match that followed to top it or try to come close to meeting it. You had Shawn Michaels climb the interior of the cage part and drop an elbow that on The Undertaker. Sick. Yeah, that was Okay? Sick. You had the cameraman bump, as you said. And yes, by ripping the, by uh, having the cameraman needing to leave, you put the top of the cell in play. You said, this is something we're doing in WWE in 1997. And then, I don't know, was it one or two years later when you had Mankind the Undertaker? Nine they, months later. Nine months later, and they came back. Well, how is how are you going to... Mick Foley, hey Mick, how are you going to top doing a bump from the side of the cell into a table? 
Oh, think about the timing here. You know, October 97, guys, right in the middle of the Monday Night Wars, one month before the Montreal Screwjob, which for, you know, the ratings didn't officially change until early 98 when WWE stopped that 83 week run that's that Nitro had been on. But certainly this is one of those moments that shifts the gears. If you watch this pay-per-view, then you're like, holy crap, Nitro has the bigger stars and they have the better gimmick with the lead NWO. But WWE is giving you top shelf brilliance in terms of the storyline. They they won the war, guys, because they dominated in what really makes wrestling work, grabbing your emotions and just playing with them. WCW in the end was more about, we have a glossy storefront, but the substance is not really there. Look at what they did with Lest. And we know that's a story that's been told many times in the, in the mythology of the Monday Night Wars, but this is a great example of doing more with less and giving you what wrestling is really all about. In, in moments like this, turn the ratings war more than any other. I'm going to make my, my match rating really quick if this is not the greatest professional wrestling match ever it's in the conversation it's a six-star match not a five-star match a six-star match well Meltzer gave it five stars and that was certainly believe you know welcome for 97 or for now by the way but just just for just for posterity are we capping our match ratings at five or can we go above five well, I think this is what I was going to say. I don't like that Meltzer went above five. I, I thought that he kind of played himself with the Omega Okada thing by go. Maybe if you went five and a quarter for the, you know, for that first Omega Okada, then you're like, okay, that was so good. It has to be a next level. But by going six and six and a quarter, I thought he kind of blew up his own scale. But with that said, Nick, this is five and a half at least, right? Like this is better than your average five-star match. And the fact that it holds up so well 20 years later, like perfectly well. I think like, it holds up nothing, better 20 years later than it almost did when you first Gaten, watched it. Michaels hit a missile drop kick on the floor that we haven't even seen in WWE for another 25, you know, 20 years. It's like, man, does it hold up? I'm going to give it five and a half stars. I'm going to play in the Meltzer scale and give it five and a half stars. All right. So in the Meltzer scale, if we're going the, the 2017 contemporary, then yeah, it's a six star match. I totally agree with Nick. I personally like the five stars. You know, I like the letter grades. So if it's if A plus is the highest you can go, it gets the extra plus, the A plus plus, the extra credit. It gets the five and a quarter star BC, like you suggested. Point being, no matter what number we put on it, like Nick said, one of the greatest, in his opinion, maybe the greatest, one of the greatest matches in WWE history. And, Bri, that takes us to next week is a viewer's choice match for Pay-Per-View Rewind. Silver King and I both saw the full list. We both um, emailed you back with what we would like to see. But ultimately, Brian, our names are not on the marquee. Your name is on the marquee. So you will announce next week's Pay-Per-View Rewind match. Yeah, this is the In This Campbell podcast and a great choice here from one of our listeners from Philadelphia. His Twitter handle is at V. No name, but he's from Philly, so it makes <laughs> sense that he made this choice. ECW, One Night Stand, 2006, the main event, WWE champion John Cena versus Rob Van Dam from the Hammerstein Ballroom in Manhattan, New York. Heck of a choice for Man Dude V. Looking forward to hearing his audio on why he chose it. And this is our first dip into ECW. Yes, it's the WWE version of ECW, but certainly this match holds some of that old ECW original spirit in it. Very excited to go back and revisit this. Indeed. Can't wait for that. So again, John Cena, RVD, One Night Stand 2006, next week's edition of Pay-Per-View Rewind. And now we close the show as we always do with what hit us in the old feel spot. Brian, you go first. Yeah, this one, I put my hands right in that spot and played around. Look, I didn't love the whole Mickey James thing, but I love corny jokes. And I love when she walked into her dressing room and saw the walker and the, the predictable box of Depends there. But what popped for me 
look, I love groin shots. I love sometimes stupid moments, memes that, that we all do, that we all go crazy for. When she picks up the package of Depends and throws it against the locker room wall in anger, it's so corny. It's so Vince McMahon in a good way. So I totally popped for that random bit of cheesiness right in the field spot. So for me this week, you know, Michael Cole may not be our favorite, favorite announcer. He may not be our favorite announcer's favorite announcer. But what he is is a damn grinder. This guy has been on the job for 20 years, and Monday night he missed just his second week of WWE TV in two decades for his son's wedding. No, this did not happen on air. No, this is not a feel spot about the programming, but it's a little feel spot for a guy who's busted his ass week in and week out. Shout out to you, Michael Cole. Congrats to your son. I like that. I like that a lot from the Silver King. I'm going to give you a feel spot from something that happened 20 years ago. And it's something that happened at Bad Blood before the actual Hell in the Cell match. When after, I don't know if you guys saw this, when Michaels cuts his promo backstage before he goes out there, Triple H grabs the microphone to start talking, and the camera immediately (laughs) cuts away from him, and Vince starts talking and intros the video package. You think that if Vince McMahon knew at that moment, that 20 years from now, that Triple H would be his, after he cut Triple H off, and like really made Triple H look like an amateur (laughs) in that moment, that Triple H would be his son-in-law and the heir to the company? I think that was pretty funny. A delicious bit of irony there. I'd urge you to go back and watch it if you skipped over it when you watched the pay-per-view rewind. And that does it for this week's edition of In This Corner with the Brian Campbell, the pro wrestling edition. We will catch you after Hell in a Cell for the Instant Analysis Pod. So for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, I am Handsome Nick Costos, the Brian Campbell, two words to take us into Sunday night. We out.